Uh, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you can multitask, let me ask you to do something, right? So if you could, I would like you to do something terribly un-British, and I would like you to look around the room right now, have a good stare at everybody else that's here, and um, see, what, see what you think of them. And if you're at home, I know you can't do this, but if you're at home, perhaps think about the people in your small group or the people that you saw last on, uh, in a most recent in-person service or perhaps that you saw on a coffee and chat. Have a good look at the people uh, around us or in your memory. And then I want you to ask this question, answer this question. What kind of people are they? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, fortunately, okay, but what kind of people are they? Now, you might think that this is a, a terrible exercise to do, but actually it's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, commands us to do in today's passage. He wants us to have a good stare at those in the church and draw some conclusions about the kind of people that make up the church. And if you don't believe me, we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, to hear Paul himself. So here we go. This is what God says to us this morning. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I don't know how you answered that question, but the Corinthians would have looked around at their church and they would have been pretty depressed. Where were the movers and shakers? Where were the people of flair and creativity and power? Perhaps they had looked around and they had said, well, how are we going to reach such a massive and contemporary and sophisticated city such as Corinth with a ragtag bunch of people like this? And so the Corinthians were tempted to abandon the message of the cross for a more socially acceptable alternative because the Corinthians had recognized something that is true. They had recognized that there is nothing eloquent or attractive about the message of a crucified Messiah. The cross is weakness and foolish in the eyes of the world. Nobody wants to embrace a wisdom that lands them on a cross or on death row. No human in their right mind would have conjured up and come up with the kind of redemption, the plan of redemption that God came up with. A crucified Messiah is both preposterous to human, humankind and it's a humiliation to God, so they thought. And so the Corinthians had become obsessed with power and wisdom from a worldly point of view. So they had become uh, intoxicated with style over substance. They had begun to quarrel in petty power struggles about who their favourite leader in the church was. 
They'd become overly impressed by powerful words and powerful performances and powerful oratory and powerful persuasive arguments from powerful people, and they had become addicted to the world's values of wisdom and power. So they feigned over the rich, they loved the influential, they wanted to hang on the coattails of those with political clout, and they listened to the experts. And they did all of this because they wanted their church to be known as wise and powerful so the world around them would be impressed. Now, last week we looked at 8 verses 18 to 25, where Paul acknowledges that at the heart of the message of the cross is this foolish and weak idea in the eyes of the world of a crucified Messiah. But he also went on to tell us that if we search for wisdom and power that the world approves of, it's like a wild goose chase, because the ways of God are not the ways of the world. Now, in our passage this morning, which is closely linked to last week, obviously, Paul is going to tell us that the ways that God works at the cross in apparent weakness and foolishness is the way that he always works. That God always contradicts the world's definitions and the world's values of wisdom and power. Because God is building an upside-down kingdom through his upside-down gospel. And that's the title of this morning's sermon. So we've got two headings or two points to help us understand the text and organise our thoughts as we proceed this morning. So we're going to look at, first of all, the weak. And then we're going to look at the wise. But the way that we're spelling wise is not W-I-S-E, it's the wise, the wise, W-H-Y-S. So let's begin with a look at what Paul has to say about the weak. Now in verse 26, Paul tells us that the bulk of the congregation in Corinth were people from a wide range of backgrounds geographically, but they were probably largely all former slaves who'd been freed. Or they were working class individuals, they were folks who were trying to make a living and climb up the ladder of wealth and society. But there were a few members in the church who were probably well educated and well connected with political clout and respectable kind of social standing. In Romans 16, Paul writes to the Romans from Corinth, from the house of a man called Gaius who was hosting him. And this man, Gaius, was a uh, director of public works in the Roman Empire, in the city of Corinth. So he was probably a, a politician of some kind. So there were a few people in the church who had standing, but the majority of the church were your bog-standard, ordinary people, a bit like us. They weren't the beautiful people of glossy Hello magazine. They weren't the brainy bunch of old Etonians or Oxbridge graduates. They weren't the Instagram influencers and the successful YouTubers with millions of subscribers. They weren't the elite sector of society. They weren't the old money or the new money either. They were just ordinary folk. And Paul encourages them to take a stroll down memory lane to consider their human origins when God called them. When God saved them, who were they and what were they like? Now, he's not being mean or spiteful to them. He's not despising their past or their background either. He's not mocking them. He's trying to make a point that in choosing people to be saved, God reverses all human expectations in his plan of salvation. That in saving sinners, he flouts all of the world's measures and all of the things that the world uses to grade and assess people and evaluate them. God turns them all upside down and he does away with human standards in choosing who to save. So it's not that Weak and foolish people choose God, as perhaps some people in the world might think, that we need a crutch to help us hobble through life. 
No, God, Paul tells us, God deliberately and intentionally and purposefully and surprisingly, perhaps to you, chooses the weak and the foolish and the lowly and he calls them to himself so that we might be saved. Look at verse 27 and 28 with me because three times we see the same refrain. God chose. He chose the weak. God chose the foolish. God chose the lowly and despised. So it wasn't a mistake or an oversight on God's part. He chose. A little bit like, I don't know whether, you, whether this happened in your school, but when I was in the playground at school and we wanted to play football, there was always two captains that would choose the teams and they'd go, oh, I'll have you and I'll have you and I'll have you and I'll have you. And they would always start with the best players for their team. And then by the end, it would work down to the people that you really, really, really didn't want. Yeah, anybody ever go through that experience? Well, God is the captain of the team and he's deliberately filling his team with the weakest, most runny-nosed, weakest, um, uncoordinated, unskilled, unsporty footballers. And he's deliberately building his team like that. And so the Corinthians, and maybe even you and me this morning, we might say, well, do you know what? If only we had a few more celebrities in our church, if only there was a few more rock stars or Olympic athletes or government cabinet ministers or rich and famous business people or glamorous movie stars, if, if there were more of those kind of people in our church, then maybe the world would sit up and notice the gospel. And God says, mm, no, it didn't work like that. I've never worked like that. I choose the lowly and the weak and the foolish. And I do that very intentionally and purposefully. And I call these nobodies and nothings to myself and I turn them upside down through the upside down gospel. The message of a crucified Messiah that doesn't make sense to the wise and the strong of this world. I make it, I make it clear. And obvious, and I use it to draw the nobodies and nothings to me and bring them into my upside down kingdom. Now, it's not that God can't save the affluent, the rich, and the famous. He can, and He does. But that's not where the glory of the gospel lies. The glory of the gospel does not lie in the fact that He calls the rich and famous, it lies in the fact that He shows mercy to those that the elite usually write off. The fundamental reason why there aren't more big shots in our church from a human perspective is because God has preferentially chosen and called nobodies and nothings, people like you and me, to be his people in his upside-down kingdom through his upside-down gospel. It's just as Jesus announced in Luke chapter 4. Do you remember that? He's in the synagogue, I think in Capernaum, in his hometown. And, he's, and he goes into the synagogue and he is invited to read and he chooses the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah and he says, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's what Paul is telling us here in 26 through 28, that God has overthrown worldly standards and expectations and forever aligned himself with the last and the least and the lowly. He's declared himself to be the God of the disenfranchised and the downtrodden and the despised. He chooses nobodies and he redeems nobodies. And so Paul invites us this morning to take a little stroll down memory lane ourselves to remember who we were when God called us and saved us. Because it would be very easy for us to fall into the, uh, the Corinthian era of thinking that we've got it all together and that's why God chose us of thinking that we're impressive and he needed us, of thinking that we can be a player in the world's game and that God is lucky to have us on his team. 
We need to take a stroll down memory lane and realise that he has shattered all pretensions that we have as humans about who God would want. He does not choose the wise and the powerful. He chooses the weak and the lowly. And that should cultivate a humility within our hearts. It should cultivate a gratitude within hearts, within our hearts that he has reached down to the undeserving like us. And it should also help us to realize that there will never be a day when we are wise enough or strong enough or high and mighty enough that we don't need God any, anymore. So Paul reminds us we're nobodies and nothing apart from Christ. God has chosen us. He's called us the weak through an upside down gospel. Now the question is why? And that leads us on to our second point this morning, the wise. You see, the Corinthians didn't stumble onto great treasure like Miss Cindy did in the puppet video this morning. No, the Corinthians were chosen by God, and, and we were chosen by God as well. Now, we might hope that God would say something like this, you know, I, hey, I chose Matthew and Allison because I saw their inner worth. I just had to have them. Or he might say, oh, do you know what? I chose Ken and Sharon and Karen and Sandra because they were diamonds in the rough. Or we might hope that God would say, oh, I saw the untapped potential of James and Alice and Angie and John and Rebecca and I just had to have them. <laughs> Unfortunately, folks, he doesn't. Sorry. I would choose you for all of those reasons. But God doesn't. Nor does God say, well, do you know what? My standards are just so low, so I'll let anybody in. We might hope that he would say that, but he doesn't say that either. Neither does he say, I will choose the weak and the foolish and the lowly, and then I will raise them up to the upper crust of society and start a new power war and a power struggle. My people will rise to the top like cream rises to the top. No, he doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he has three reasons that Paul tells us in this passage First one is this in verses 27 and 28. God chooses the weak, the foolish, and the lowly to shame the world. To shame the world. God works in his ways and he chooses those whom he calls to shame the world and bring its standards and ideas and values and preconceptions to nothing. Why did God, what God did at the cross and what he does in calling lowly Christians to himself, it, it both exhibits his godly character and it reveals that he's not beholden to the world, that he does whatever he wants, which Psalm 135 verse 6 tells us. But he does it primarily to shame the wise and the powerful by human standards. So the worldly wise will tell you, that you need to be clever, you need to be intellectual to understand God and to know him. And Paul says, eh, wrong. God chooses the, the foolish to shame the wise. The worldly strong will tell you that you need to be self-sufficient and have it all together in order to know God. Paul goes, eh, wrong. God chose the weak and the foolish to shame the wise and the strong. The worldly elite will tell you, I am not going to tarnish my reputation by associating myself with a crucified Messiah. Paul says, more fool you. Because he's the only way by which men can be saved. God deliberately chooses the weak and the foolish and lowly to put this rebellious and fallen world and all of its mistaken ideas to shame. Now, when you hear the word shame, don't think he's out to embarrass everybody. Or that he's intent on making everybody feel ashamed 
Now, the word shame here is, is a word that would be uh, used after war when, when enemies were conquered. It means to expose and disgrace them as on the wrong team, on the wrong side of history. So he's shaming their worldview and their values and saying, the wisdom and the power of my enemies is foolishness. And my wisdom and power is vindicated, and it will be on the last day. The rich and the powerful and the wise might look like they've got it all now, but on the last day, they will be shamed because they have turned away from the living God. The Corinthian culture at the time, uh, and, and largely across the culture across the whole Roman Empire, was one of uh, honor and shame. So it was a, it was a culture that, that valued heroes and despised zeros. Okay, they valued heroes and they despised zeros, but God says, I'm going to choose the zeros, and by doing so, I'm going to expose the so-called superheroes as shams, and I'm going to shame them and expose them for who they really are, for the empty and hollow people that they are and the values and the worldview that they hold. It's a little bit like those who think that they are superheroes now will on the last day find out that actually they've only really been wearing their pants on the outside of their clothes later, yeah? That they were wearing tights and pants the wrong way around. It's that kind of shame. They thought they were dressed like Superman and they just actually turned out to be the most foolish people. So God does what he does with his upside down gospel to shame the world. Secondly, he does it to stop all boasting. This is in verse 29. He does all of this. He chooses the things that are not. So in the eyes of the world, Christians that the world doesn't even think are worth uh, a mention or exist. He does this to bring to nothing the things that are. Those who think they're it, God's going to bring them to nothing. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Ultimately, all of this divine folly is so that no one can boast before God regarding their salvation. God intentionally and deliberately chooses the weak and the foolish and the lowly. He chooses the cross, he chooses the Corinthians, and he chooses you and me so that he can remove from us every kind of possible ground that we might have to commend ourselves to God, to go to him and, and curry favor with him, to bring him something that might make us acceptable to him. He's done everything that he can possibly do in his perfect wisdom to say, there's no grounds for boasting. What he's doing is he's taking a, uh, a shovel and he's leveling the ground at the foot of the cross. So that there is not one single thing that you and I possess that is of any advantage to us in trying to earn our salvation from God. Not our intellect, not our popularity, not our social clout, not our achievements, not our status, not our prestige, not our wealth, not our bank accounts or our job titles. Paul wants us to see that coming to faith was not our bright idea, it was God's idea. And it's all his work and his choice and his doing. That means that all the things that you and I might be tempted to trust in and to boast in, good things. I pray every day. Work hard in my job. I love my wife and my kids and I'm faithful to them. I'm a good person. I show kindness to little old ladies. I go to church. I drop something in the offering or transfer some money through the bank. 
I read my Bible, all good things, but none of those things have power to save. They're not applicable when it comes to salvation. And Paul reminds us here that God has eliminated all boasting by giving salvation as a gift to the totally undeserving. Praise the Lord that God doesn't work like the government immigration system. Do you, you know what the, the, the government is trying to, either they brought in or they're trying to bring in some kind of immigration system where if you want to come and live in this country, they will judge whether you are worthy of residency by your language skills. They will judge whether you are worthy by the education level that you've, received, you've reached. They will judge your skills and abilities for employment. They will judge your financial assets. They will judge your marital status and they will make a decision about that as to whether you are worthy of citizenship in Britain. Praise the Lord, he doesn't work like that. He does not work like that. If he did, if he did work like that, then he, if he accepted people on the basis of their wisdom or their power or how elite they were, well, then he would, A, compromise himself as God. B, he would be the worst kind of snob that you could ever meet. And C, for all those who were in, we'd be able to say, yeah, we deserve this. God needs us. And he doesn't get the glory. The message of the cross is that we have no boast and no glory. It's all of Jesus. Look at verse 30 quickly, where Paul says, God, Jesus has become for us everything we need for salvation. He's become everything we couldn't do for ourselves. Paul says it to the Corinthians in a, in a community that so highly prized wisdom and esteemed it, that it, the wisdom of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that he is almost the wisdom, he is the wisdom of God personified. You want to find wisdom? It's Jesus. And this wisdom of God, this wisdom personified in Christ, he has become for us righteousness. He's made a right standing for us before God. He's become our sanctification or, or some translations holiness. That means it's, it's Paul's way of describing the, the kind of the sphere or the realm to which Christians now um, belong. We belong in God's holy people, we are his saints, we are set apart through the wisdom who is Jesus. And we have redemption, we've been set free, we've been liberated from the bondage to sin and Satan and death through the wisdom of God, that is Jesus. And so the message of the cross is we have no boast because it's all about Jesus. He is the wisdom of God and in God's wisdom, through this Jesus, he has provided all that we need for salvation. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so that leads us to the third and final why in verse 31, where Paul quotes from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God do what he does? Well, he does it to shame the world. He does it to stop the human boasting, but he also does it to receive all the glory. He does it to receive all the glory. This wisdom in Jesus Christ has swooped down and saved the weak and the foolish and the lowly and those transformed by it. Now Paul says in the words of Jeremiah are to boast in the Lord with all other grounds of our confidence swept aside where we by this divine folly we are left with only one thing that we can do for those who have in Christ become truly wise and have experienced God's power, we now praise him and give him glory for his wisdom displayed and manifested in the risen Christ of the cross. All praise to him, Paul says, for his upside down gospel. 
And that's what we're going to do now. So let's pray and then we'll stand and, and hum along together.